Good morning. <clears throat> Scheduled to speak a week ago, right before Valentine's Day, so there was supposed to be a joke about suffering their husbands for a long time. So we're in the middle of a series called The Character of God. This morning I'll be covering the third attribute of God, slow to anger, or in other translations, long-suffering. Brother Paul King opened the series with compassion, so merciful, and Brother Paul Irvin spoke on graciousness last week. These two attributes, attributes almost always appear together in the Old Testament, and it's because they complement one another so well. The Hebrew words for compassion and grace are rahum and hanun, respectively. They each appear 13 times in the Old Testament, and 11 of those times they appear together. So to tie them together, you could say compassion is an emotional response from God displayed as an act of generosity that is undeserved. About the passage itself, Exodus 34, 6 through 7, uh, is the most quoted or repeated passage in the Old Testament, more than 27 times. So given its frequency, we can infer it is, one, extremely important to God for us to know this about him, and two, for us to understand the important importance of each one of God's attributes in relation to the others. You see, at his very core, our God is a merciful and loving God, and his anger is a divine response to man's habitually wicked ways. Yes, his anger and judgment are an important theme in the Bible. However, it's important to understand it is rooted in love. He created man in order to have a relationship with us and us with him. The core of the gospel and the recurring theme from start to finish is how to restore that relationship he so desires to have with us. So let's begin by reading the key passage that, uh, before we discuss today's topic. I'll be reading from the New International Version throughout today's message, but will reference certain words used in the King James and the New Living. Verse 6, And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. So first, I thought we should discuss how the Bible talks about anger. The King James Version of the Bible translates it as long-suffering. However, the phrase in Hebrew is a combination of two words. The first is arak, which means long or slow, or to be or make long or slow. And it's typically used in this form um, to measure the length of an object, distance, or time. The other word is apayim, which is the word for two noses. But it's really what you'd say if you were referring to both nostrils. It's specifically referring to two. More than two, it's a different word altogether. And so this is the same word used in Genesis 2, verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The same word, apayim, can also mean the whole face, which appears often with the phrase, to bow one's face to the ground, as in Genesis 42, 6. And Joseph's brethren came and bowed down themselves before him with their faces to the earth. What makes this even more interesting is that the word for the singular of nose, af, is also the word for anger. 
So given how versatile the uses of both Arak, Af, and Apayim are, we can understand how the idioms long-suffering and slow to anger can both be derived when used together. Arak Apayim. To study the importance of God being slow to anger, we should first have a proper understanding of the word anger itself, specifically how the Bible uses the word anger. Standard way of using the word anger was to say their nose burned hot. For example, in 1 Samuel 17:28, when David comes to the battlefront and begins speaking with the soldiers, his oldest brother, Eliab, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused or kindled against David. And he said, "Why did you come down here, and with whom have you left those uh, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle." The passage reads, he burned with anger in the, new, uh, in the NIV. This is the word kara, which means to grow hot or to become angry. It's also used to describe the Lord's anger. The first example in the Old Testament where God is described as angry occurs in Exodus 4.14. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. And look, he is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall do. This is not only the first example of God being described as angry, which is a point I'll bring up later on. It's also an example of him being slow to anger. If you read the full text of the burning bush, you'll discover God's anger was only kindled after Moses' fifth excuse. He was trying to dissuade God from using him to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. First, he says, who am I, Lord? Then he says, who shall I say you are? The third excuse was, what if they don't believe me? And then, I'm a terrible speaker. Actually, what he says is a rock of tongue, so slow of tongue. And finally, oh, Lord, please just send somebody else. Personally, uh, while reading this, I was frustrated with Moses after the third excuse, because while, while I'm reading it, I'm likening this exchange to ones that I have with my own children. And I can say with certainty that neither I nor my wife allow these exchanges to go on that long. We have what the Hebrews would call short nostrils. These two words, af and hara, either separately or together, are what you'll find in the majority of uses for anger. What I want you to take away from this linguistics lesson is that Exodus 34, 6 is telling us that God's nose burns slowly. Also, I couldn't help that during the study of the etymology of these words, it stirred in my mind that cartoonish imagery when they show a character getting angry or releasing anger. They turn red in the face to imply they're burning hotter and hotter, and they seem to grow in size as if steam is building up inside. And while it takes a few seconds to build, it eventually reaches fever pitch, and the steam or smoke pours out of their ears and nose all at once. So perhaps the illustrators back then were also well-versed in Hebrew. There are a couple other words for anger in Hebrew that we translate as wrath or fury. Psalm 2, 4 through 5 reads, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall hold them in derision, then he shall speak to them in his wrath, off and distress them in his deep displeasure, Haron. The NIV says wrath, and NLT uses fierce fury, where the King James uses deep or sore displeasure. 
but it's the same Hebrew word for burning anger, with the root coming from to grow hot. Also in Deuteronomy 29, 28, in great anger and fury, the Lord uprooted his people from their land and banished them to another land where they still live today. Fury, in this case, is the word ketzah. The uses and descriptions of anger throughout the Bible are ones we can relate to. We know the feeling. We've all felt anger rise within us. But do we assign the same effect anger has on us to God? Have we approached our understanding of God's anger with a bias according to our own anger? Additionally, many passages in the Bible, when read in isolation, where his anger is mentioned, can lead us to think there's a contradiction to this description of being slow to anger. For example, Numbers 11.1, Now the people complained about their hardships, and when he heard his anger was aroused, and when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. Or Isaiah 5.25, Therefore the Lord's anger burns against his people. His hand is raised and he strikes them down. The mountains shake and the dead bodies are like refuse in the streets. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. They're very heavy depictions of God's anger in action. And it is these depictions of his anger out of context that have become a popular contention for people who don't know God have. Either way, we are responsible for distorting the truth about God's anger. So this next section is called Misplaced Anger. The God we read about on these pages is an emotive and relational being. To quote from Abraham Heschel's book called Sabbath, God does not reveal himself in abstract absoluteness, but in a personal and intimate relation to the world. He is moved and affected by what happens in the world and reacts accordingly. Events and human actions arouse in him joy or sorrow, pleasure or wrath. He is not conceived as judging the world in detachment. He reacts in an intimate manner, being moved and affected and grieved or gladdened by what people do. This notion basically defines the biblical consciousness of God. This is because the prophets had no theory or idea of God. What they had was an understanding, not the result of theoretical inquiry about God. Rather, to them, God was overwhelmingly real and shatteringly present. We have the Bible because he chronicled his relationship with his people, a relationship with expectations that were spelled out. And when those expectations aren't meant, anger arises. But this isn't the same, man the same manifestation of anger we are familiar with. Modern thinking around anger is that it's a secondary emotion to address a primary one. I got angry because I was afraid, or it's out of protection, or I was hurt. So we're instructed to address the primary emotion underlying the anger, but on the other hand, if we bottle it up because, uh, we sh because showing anger is unkind or lacking in self-control, then we risk acting out in anger, which can be abusive. Here's what Heschel says on the matter. Few divine passions have been so denounced so vehemently by teachers of morality as the divine passion of anger. It's pictured as sinister, malignant passion, an evil force, which must, under all circumstances, be suppressed. The truth, however, is that all of these features are not the essence of anger. Like fire, anger may be a blessing as well as fatal, reprehensible when associated with malice, but morally necessary as resistance to malice. The prophets never portray God's anger as something that can't be accounted for or unpredictable or irrational. It's never spontaneous outburst 
always a reaction occasioned by the conduct of humans motivated by a concern for right and wrong. So yes, God gets angry, but his anger is measured, calculated, and for good reason. Fortunately for us, we are able to learn from each example of the Bible what makes him angry because when someone gets angry, they are telling you what they care about. So why does God get angry at all? There are three instances in Exodus where God gets angry. We could never cover in this time every example of God in his anger, so I will focus on the three in Exodus that elicit three different responses. The first mention of God's anger is one we looked at earlier, Exodus 4, 14 through 16. I'll read it again. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, What about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you. He will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. I will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if it were God to him. We see here God's anger burned against Moses, but then what happens? He doesn't act on this anger. Rather, he offers a concession to Moses by suggesting Aaron be his mouthpiece. So he offers a solution. The second instance of God's anger is the poetic retelling of when he parted the Red Sea and destroyed Pharaoh and his men. Exodus fifteen seven through 8. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. In this example, God takes action against Israel's oppressor as an act of justice and anger. And the third occurrence is Exodus 32, 10 through 12. During the golden calf story from which our key verses come, Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. So in the first example, we see The Lord burn angry, but do nothing to express it. No form of judgment in this instance. He instead offers help. What did Moses do in this instance, though? The Lord is here revealing himself to Moses in the burning bush, extending an invitation to enter into relationship, offering him everything that he will need for the task he's being asked to do, and he's given signs to work with. But Moses continues to resist And by doing so, he is resisting the notion that God is reliable, trustworthy, and good. This angers God. The second example shows when God's anger is expressed as an act of judgment, the oppressor of God's chosen people met their end. Pharaoh committed genocide with the babies in the river and enslaved Israel to name two. Injustice toward the vulnerable and oppressed, this angers God. The third example involves Israel and their betrayal of God via idolatry, just as they enter into a covenant with him. This angers God. And I'll focus more in a second on why this is so egregious and why it evokes the most anger. But with all three of these instances of God's anger, even though they elicit a different response from him, he displays his long-suffering in each. At the burning bush, Moses resists God by coming up with five excuses 
and each time God has a response. On the fifth excuse, God's anger burns against Moses, but he compromises with Moses in order to recruit him. In the exodus out of Egypt, Pharaoh meets his end because God hardened his heart and he pursued the Israelites into the Red Sea. However, Pharaoh was given 10 chances to relent and let God's people go. God has no relationship with Pharaoh. He has no covenant with him. Yet he receives twice the number of opportunities as the previous example with Moses to turn from his sin. On Mount Sinai, our key verse occurs right before Moses' fifth intercession to God regarding their idolatry. God reduced his sentencing from destroying the Israelites after the first intercession to agreeing to go forth with them into the wilderness and forgiving their rebellion and sin after Moses' fifth intercession. Now, there is way more that we could unpack here regarding Moses and the implications of this exchange of intercession with God, but that's not for today. So let me return to the idolatry that stoked God's severe anger. A portion of verse 7 was mentioned in Exodus 20 when the commandments are given, and they show up again word for word in Deuteronomy 5 when Moses is reviewing the law with the next generation who will enter the promised land. He describes himself as a jealous or passionate God immediately following the instruction to not make idols or worship them. Deuteronomy 5, 9 through 10. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous, passionate God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. I wanted to expound on the third and fourth generations and the loving kindness to thousands, but that spills over into a different subject matter. But there's very good um, poetry going on, and he teaches you a lot about himself with this. Um, So jealous may be the word translated in some of our Bibles, but it's not the same jealous that we use in today's vernacular. The word jealous sort of adds to the meaning something that doesn't belong. The Hebrew word is kana. Today we use jealous almost synonymously with envy. But even those two words have different meanings. Jealousy is what we feel when something we deserve or should have is taken from us. Whereas envy is more the feeling when we want something that doesn't belong to us or that we don't have. Passion gets closer but stops short because it's too general a word in this context. To quote Dr. Tim Mackey, Kana is derived from the root kana, which is a covenant term, and it has to do with the passion that arises within you when you see somebody that you're covenantly connected, giving their allegiance and their well-being over to someone who will hurt them. Another important instance of this word kana shows up in Numbers 5. This portion of scripture discusses what is to be done when a man suspects his wife of infidelity and if feelings of jealousy come over her husband and he suspects his wife and she is impure or if he is jealous and suspects her even though she is not impure. So this is a feeling of passion for his covenantal partner, his wife. This is a significant source of God's anger or what can cause his anger to arise. The Israelites in the golden calf story had just entered into a covenant with him. It's not by any means ambiguous. In Exodus 24, 3, we read, 
When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said, we will do. They were, if you want to look at it this way, mid-wedding ceremony with the Lord God when they corrupted themselves with the very thing he explicitly told them not to do. So we move forward into a glance at God's judgment. So what is the nature of God's judgment? We can read each example and see how creative and original his judgment can be, but what is the underlying nature of it? What narratives do and do not connect God's severe act of judgment with anger? Because the two are not always connected. There are many instances of God administering judgment with no mention of his anger. There are also mentions of his anger with nothing coming of it. So we see there isn't a constant association between his anger and violence in the Bible. And this explanation begins at the creation. Genesis 1, 6 through 10. And God said, let there be a vault or firmament, I like firmament, between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Here we're paying close attention to his placing a firmament to separate the waters and the gathering of the water in one place, which he called seas. Then in Genesis 2, 4 through 8, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens... Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. There he put the man he had formed. In this passage, we're noting how man was created, then placed into the garden. So to be in the garden is to be in the realm of protected, ordered life. Outside of the garden, that's the realm of danger, disorder, and death. So to be exiled outside of this protected space is the worst thing that could happen. Likewise, if the waters above and below the firmament were released, also a very bad day you're having. And in the next few chapters... We see both happen. So from the first two accounts of God's judgment, we see God undoing what he's done to create order and bring life. He removes his ordering power and hands man over to the logical outcomes of their decisions. The flood story is not an example of God expressing his anger, but it does help us understand how he administers his judgment. In fact, his anger isn't referenced once during either the fall or the flood. Rather, we read, in the case of the flood, he was grieved in his heart. Genesis 6, 6 through 13. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of this time, and he walked faithfully with God. 
Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and it was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. Man had corrupted the earth. The word corrupt here is the Hebrew word shakat, to decay or ruin. This word especially marks dissolution or corruption and also to the physical destruction of all that was living on the earth and of the earth itself. God responds in kind and says, essentially, man has corrupted himself and the land, so I will expedite their inevitable destruction and I'll use the very land they corrupted to do it. That phrase in 13 that says, I'm going to put an end to all people, would literally be translated from Hebrew as the end of all flesh is before me. God sees where man is headed and is just accelerating the destruction of the corrupt while preserving the remnant of the righteous. He removes his sustaining and ordering power and hands sinful man over to the death and disorder he has unleashed in creation. You see this phrase, hands over, commonly used to express God's anger. And you see it again in the New Testament when Paul is writing to the Romans. Romans one twenty four. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. Again in 26. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Again in 28. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. So let me bring this morning's thoughts full circle. God is so good that he absolutely must respond to evil and injustice with anger. He will express his anger in a measured and reasonable judgment by giving sinful man over to their sin. But he wants us to know that he is slow to do so. And here's why. He is slow to anger because it's an intentional allowance of time for man to come to know him. Remember the Hebrew word for slow is also used for measuring the length of time. So, as Peter states in 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Paul takes it even further by making sure believers avoid the hypocrisy of desiring slow anger from God in their own lives, but swift justice elsewhere. Romans 2, 2 through 4. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? When he presents judgment, he does so in a way that there's always back to him. So may we fully understand the implications of his long suffering in our lives, be thankful for it, and be motivated to extend it, not only those in our lives we love, but also to those in the world who require it. Our Lord God in heaven, humanity has been handed over to death as a result of your divine response to sin. But in your long suffering, Lord, you were not content to let humanity destroy itself. So you sent your only begotten son to rescue us. Lord, it is your own love that answers to your wrath through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. 
Instead of hiding your face or handing us over, you have reconciled us to the Father. And we thank you for every ounce of compassion, grace, long-suffering, faithfulness, and forgiveness you continue to extend to us in your Son's name. Amen.